Well, if you'd keep your Bibles open uh, to Genesis chapters 43 and 44. If you're new with us, we've been working our way through the life of Joseph, obviously taking some longer sections to hold these stories uh, together. And uh, we've had a little break over the Christmas holidays, but we're back. Wanted to start with a question, and that is, have you ever wanted a, a do-over? You know, there's uh, that moment in your life uh, that kind of plagues you, maybe some, uh, some word said or some action taken that you just wish you could, uh, you could go back and get a chance to, to redo that moment and to fix it. And you wonder how things might be in your life if you had that chance, but you can't. Or maybe you don't so much uh, want to uh, change the, the past you in that moment, but you would love to change the, the present you. There are, there are things about you, your character, your, your habits, that are not so good. And you can't seem to change. You try, but you find yourself kind of defaulting back to your old ways. Uh, maybe they're character flaws that are obvious to everybody and they kind of affect all your relationships. Or, or maybe it's something that's, that only you know about. It's kind of hidden, but it haunts you. And even if you're a believer and you know you're forgiven and, 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 and you've saved, you just feel stuck like you can't change. And you're always in that struggle. And you just wish you could change. Well, whatever the case, I would say this passage before us this morning offers hope, uh, not only for a fresh start, kind of a, uh, a redo, but, but real hope for authentic change now, because this passage tells us about God radically transforming uh, his people. See, if you've been with us for this Life of Joseph series, you know a couple of things we've been learning about uh, uh, the way that God saves, does his saving work in the world. One, we've learned that God is sovereign in his saving work. In the midst of uh, all the messy rebellion of, of the children of Abraham, which often reads like the Jerry Springer show, if you know the 90s uh, daytime talk. It's, it's, it's very soap opera, bad dysfunctional family stuff, but God, we've seen, is sovereign in the midst of it to do his saving work. Secondly, we've seen that God does his saving work by raising up a ruler. That's what we've seen in Joseph. He's raising up this, this blameless shepherd, suffering ruler, which of course is a foreshadowing of Christ. And third, we've seen that God does his saving work by transforming the lives of his people. He doesn't just do it for us, although he does. And he doesn't just do it around us in this world. He actually does it through his people by transforming their lives. And there could be no better demonstration of this than Joseph's brothers. They are like the extreme makeover, right, of his transformation. In our last sermon, which was weeks ago now, in chapter 42, we saw the beginning steps of God's transformative work in his brothers' lives. And we saw it through two hard blessings that he brought to their lives. And the first was guilt. These brothers had neglected 
God's promises to them and, and lived as if God wasn't even in this world, wasn't even existent. They were indulging in their sinful desires. They were getting involved in murderous and adulterous and even incestuous ways. They were so overcome with envious vitriol for Joseph that they sold him into slavery and sure death for 20 pieces of silver. And in all of it, they didn't seem to have much of a conscience, did they? Remember when they threw him into the pit and then it says they sat down to have a meal and they're just chatting and having a good time? Why, he's literally, we find out later, crying for his life. No conscience. These are the kind of guys that you say, they don't, they don't change. They're a lost cause. But God in his grace, we saw, awakened their guilt, real guilt in their lives. He used the circumstances of the famine coming on the land and them having to travel down and stand before Joseph. They didn't know it was Joseph. He had become the right-hand man of Pharaoh. And he questioned them about their brother and their father. And then he accused them of being spies and threw them into prison all together in one jail for three days. And they began to feel the weight of their guilt. It began to come out. In chapter uh, 42, verse 21, uh, we see them. They said to one another, this is as they're in the jail, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. You feel their guilt. We noted in the last sermon that our culture doesn't do very well with guilt. We don't like guilt. We try to act like it's not a real thing or a healthy thing. We love phrases like, I have no regrets. Right? You can have some terrible debauched weekend or have do something terrible. And, oh, I don't regret a thing. That's a real man. No guilt. But the scripture says, actually, not only is guilt real, but it's good. It can be misplaced and it can be abused, but real guilt, guilt is sinners before our holy God that weighs us and eats at our souls is good. Feeling it, facing it, owning it. It's the way of real change. It's the beginning of God doing his transformation. So he weighed them down with their guilt. And then he added something else to it, another hard blessing, and that was fear, if you remember. Joseph sent them back home with their bags full of grain, but he commanded, and he commanded them to bring back Benjamin, but then he told his steward to put the money they had paid in the mouth of their bags, and when they discovered it there, the text tells us they, they were terrified. Their hearts failed them. They feared God, it says, for the first time. So by the end of chapter 42, God had them right where he wanted them, disturbed in their souls, feeling guilty over their sin, fearing the judgment of God, kind of wide-eyed before him, primed for transformation. And in, verse, and in chapter 43 and 44 that we're moving into today, we see the continuation of this transformation process. It's kind of God transforming them part two. And what do you think the next step is? Guilt, fear, mercy. You see, in our te as our text opens this morning, we see mercy. 
it focuses in on Judah again. It brings us back to brother Judah. Now, if you've been paying attention to the series, you know that Judah is kind of an all-star of horribleness amongst his brothers. If you notice back in chapter 37, he's the brother that suggested selling uh, Joseph into slavery. That was his brilliant idea. Why kill him? Let's make some money off him. Let's sell him into slavery and he'll die in Egypt. And after that, he moved to the Canaanite land, where he wasn't supposed to move to, and then married a Canaanite woman because he had no faith in the promises of God. And then he slept with his daughter-in-law, who he thought was a prostitute, and when they found her pregnant, he commanded that she be killed. Total hypocrisy, a horrible guy. But God has brought his guilt upon him and fear of judgment. And as our text opens, there seems to be a change in him. It's kind of hinted at at the beginning, but it grows. So look at chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. So they went back. They didn't go back with Benjamin because they weren't allowed. So they're back in the land. They're running out of food. And their father says, Go. But Judah steps up and speaks. And he reminds his father, Jacob, that we can't go back without Benjamin. He'll kill us if we go back without Benjamin. And they exchange back and forth about this until you get to verse 8. And look at this. And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die. Both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Wow, Judah, who had basically disowned his family, marrying into the Canaanites, is now taking them on his shoulders, the whole welfare of his family. He's willing to own the blame and take responsibility. Something's happening in him. And it's just beginning. And then Jacob responds to him. Look at this, verse 11. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds, of course. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. Verse 14, may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man. Jacob sends them off to take Benjamin with a prayer for mercy, that God will grant them mercy. And amazingly, as you read this chapter 43, that's what happens The rest of the chapter is mercy upon mercy upon mercy to these guys. And it starts the minute they arrive, verse 16, when Joseph saw Benjamin, so they've they've come down, 
They've got to Egypt. It says, when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men, for the men are to dine with me at noon. I, I love this moment. What does it remind you of? Joseph standing and seeing his brothers coming to get in that grain line. Maybe he saw them at a distance. And he says, prepare an animal for slaughter. My brothers have returned. I can't help but think of the prodigal son. It's the same kind of reception, isn't it? Joseph, from the moment he sees them, is overjoyed at his brother's return. And he wants to celebrate Kill the fatted calf. Let's get ready to die. It's an amazing kind of unexpected response of mercy. His brothers definitely didn't expect it. Did you see their response? They think it's a trap. <laughs> They're like, oh, he's going to get us all into the dining hall where we're stuck, and then he's going to put his men upon us. They're going to attack us. And my favorite part is it says, and they're going to take our donkeys. He wants their donkeys. But of course they're wrong. It's not a trap. This is real. Pharaoh's right-hand man, Joseph, but they know him as you know, Pharaoh's man, the man they have sinned against in more ways than they know, the ruler who holds all the power to make them pay, is responding to them with mercy. And note the nature of, of the mercy here. It's not a resigned kind of keeping of a deal. It's not like Joseph said, hey, they, they brought back Benjamin like I asked, uh, and I, I said that I, I would judge them to be honest men and release Simeon if they did that, so I'm just going to keep my part of the deal. Let's have, let's have a meal and kind of you know, shake on it. It's all good and go our ways. It's not a contractual mercy where he feels obligated to show some kind of favor. It's actually this relational generosity. It's a mercy that invites them into to fellowship, into his home, to dine with him, so he can know them as his brothers again. It's a mercy that seeks peace with them at his own cost. Did you notice in the reading when Joseph's brothers tried to explain to the steward of the house about how the money got back in their sacks. They get there, they're worried they're going to be attacked, and they're trying to explain. Oh, this is, we don't know how it happened and, and it, you know, how it appeared there, but we've brought back extra money. Did you notice his response to them? Verse, uh, verse 23, I believe. This is what he said. He replied to them, peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. He knows how that money got in their sacks. He's the guy who put it there. But he says, God did it. Don't be afraid. Peace. It's actually the word shalom. Be at rest. No worries. 
It's funny, the word comes up two more times in the next few sentences when he's, you can't see it in the English, but when he's talking about the wellness and the welfare of his father, it says shalom, shalom. We're not supposed to miss it as readers. Joseph is orchestrating shalom for them at his own personal cost. It was his money in the bags. It's his offer to the meal. He wants to restore the relationship. And it's a mercy that is rooted in genuine love and compassion for them. Not only did Joseph have them brought in and given water to drink and their feet washed and their animals cared for, luxuries of his kind of posh elite life, but look at what happens when he finally sees Benjamin in verse 29. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out for his compassion. It's actually the word mercy. Mercy grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep, and he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. His mercy just comes out of this warm, it's actually in the Hebrew, this heating up heart of mercy for his brothers. He loves them deeply. He weeps for them. He weeps over their sin and the brokenness that it's brought to the relationship, and he weeps over this moment for restoration. And finally, it's a mercy that brings celebration. By the end of the chapter, this chapter 43, they're all dining together. This torn up family now dining together in unity and celebration. Yes, it's not quite there. Joseph is still, you know, at the Egyptian table. But from a horizontal angle, they're all together and Joseph is serving them, the oldest to the youngest. And the brothers are looking at each other. In verse 33 it says, and the men looked at one another in amazement. They can't believe what's happening. My friends, in case you're missing it, this is a picture of how our God transforms his sinful, wayward people. All of us. He starts with hard blessings, awakening our guilt so we feel it. Kind of like a good doctor wanting you truly know your condition. So we own it. So we, so we grieve over our sin and our souls. And, 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 and it may take really hard things to do this. It was famine and imprisonment for these guys. It can be a painful awakening. And then he brings fear. A real and proper fear before him. Like, like when the brothers first found the money in their sex and it says their heart failed them. It, it's, it's the fear of knowing that our God is our just judge, that he sees our lives, our sins. There's no getting away. We will answer. He's holy and just. He will punish sin. Every man is destined to die and face judgment. And it's a blessing to feel this fear. It means we get it. It means we know the truth. And as we respond and wrestle with these realities, then God comes with his incredible 
relational mercy, drawing us in towards him, inviting us to know him in fellowship, offering peace, shalom at his own sacrifice. And I want us to just take a moment and kind of park on that and think about the relational interactive process of this transformation that, that, that is working in, in Joseph's brothers. You see, although God is, is sovereign in it, it's not some rote mechanical action that he just makes happen from on high, right? The kind of predestinational zap. So it's just put on them where one day they find themselves saved and changed. I think sometimes in our sort of Calvinistic theological exactness, we can sort of shortcut things and just say, well, God, you know, he just does it. He saves his people. It's done. No, it's this organic and real relational process, this struggle, this wrestling, this intermittent guilt and, and, and fear, resistance and response and, and, and revelation and growth. It happens through the messiness of life and the brokenness of this world in the midst of all of it. It's kind of like the birth process, isn't it? Painful. But it's the very, this very process that is so profoundly transforming. Look at what happens to these brothers through all their struggles, through the guilt and the fear and the mercy. We see it in chapter 44. That's what this chapter is about. It, it really shows us the transformation. I just want to point out two things that happen, and the first is simply surrender, complete surrender. As we head into this chapter, Joseph has one last test for his brothers. It's kind of surprising. You think, oh, he's, he's going to do it again? Wow. After dining with them, he sends them home again with full sacks of grain. But again, he asks his steward to put their money back in their bags, to hide, to hide it there. But he also adds one more detail. He says, in the mouth of Benjamin's sack... Benjamin, the youngest son, the beloved son, the one they can't lose. He says, put my silver cup, I believe it's the cup he was having at his meal. And of course they leave and then the steward, steward pursues them, finds them, accuses them of stealing the cup, which they vehemently deny, vowing that if it's found in any of their sacks, that brother will die. So the steward goes through their sacks dramatically from oldest to youngest, Oh, and at last, Benjamin's sack, and there it is, the cup, and they tear their clothes. And they're brought back before Joseph, and we come to this scene, verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination. I love this. He's playing the part, isn't he? And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? 
What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out our guilt. And that's not the guilt about the cup, right? It's found out our guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants. Both we and also, and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. It's a moment, you see, of complete and total surrender before Joseph, their ruler. You can hear the resignation in the words. And by the way, this, this lowering down before Joseph has been progressing through the text. The author's kind of gone out of his way. If you look at 43, verse 26, it says, When Joseph came home, they bought and brought into the house him the present they had with him and bowed down to him to the ground. Then you look at verse 28. They said, your servants, our father is well and he is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. They're getting down even farther. And then you get to verse 14 at the beginning of our section. When they come in after this has happened, it says they fell, fell before him to the ground. Which, by the way, in the New Testament is always how people come to Jesus. You notice they always fall down before him. They fall before him. They are done. They admit their guilt. They throw themselves on his mercy and say they will become his servants for life. What a change. What a moment. Remember back when they were taunting Joseph? When he said, you're all going to bow to me. Oh, no, we're not. And we will sell you into slavery to make sure that never happens. Here they are, the same guys, prostate, prostrate before him, relying on his mercy, giving over their lives to his service. It's a picture, by the way, of repentance. The first sign or, or the real sign of, of transformation in one's life, it's fleshed out and demonstrated here how we're to come to our compassionate ruler. It's not about words of regret and sorrow, but giving our lives over our control, surrendering to his mercy. That's what I love about the scriptures. They don't just teach us theology. They don't just say, oh, repent. But they demonstrate it in the lives of people, what it means so we get it. Do you know this kind of repentance in your life? Have you surrendered? You say, yeah, I want to be transformed. I want to be changed. You want God to change you. Have you surrendered your life? Not, yeah, I'm sorry, and I do the baptism thing. No, have you given over your life? Now, there's another point of transformation in these guys' lives that I think kind of brings everything home, and it, it, and it lets us know how real and radical their change is. We see it in the last part of this chapter. You see, as the brothers sit there, bowed before Joseph, vowing lifetime servitude, Joseph has an interesting response. Look at verse 17. But he said, 
far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Wow. (laughs) I mean, a way out. He's going to let them off the hook completely. All they have to do is abandon Benjamin. All they have to do is leave the favored son, the youngest beloved son, their father's, the one their father loves more than the rest. Leave him to be a slave in Egypt for the rest of his life, and they can go free. No consequence. They can head home to their father and perhaps with a a little lie and some bloody clothes, all is back to normal. You see, Joseph has orchestrated all of this to bring them right back to that moment in chapter 37, 15 years ago when they were so filled with jealousy and enraged with hatred for the favored son with his special colored coat when they had him in a pit and they were deciding his fate, they are right there again. It's the do-over moment. What are they going to do? Have they really changed? And by the way, Joseph has already been stoking the fires of this envy, hasn't he? This envy of the favored son. Do you remember with the dinner? How much food did Benjamin get? They all got regular portions. And then he told the steward to go over to Benjamin, give him some more. Give him some more. How about a little more for Benjamin, everybody? Five times so that I cannot miss it. Oh, Benjamin, always the favored one. Even in Egypt, they love him. So you can imagine the temptation in this moment. I mean, come on. He's just the same as Joseph was, a sniveling little spoiled son of Rachel. He isn't even their full brother. Ditch him and live well, prosper. It would have been so easy. I know I would have been like, why did you take the silver cup, man? I I gotta go. But they've changed. They're not the same men. Their hearts have been transformed. In fact, did you notice the response when Benjamin got five times the portion in verse 34? Look at it. Look at the end of it. Chapter 43, verse 34, last verse. It says this. And they drank and were merry with him. They weren't jealous. They were rejoicing at his blessing. They love their little brother. And they're not going to give him up. And so in verse 18, Judah steps up to offer Joseph, to answer Joseph's offer. Judah, the one whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery for 20 pieces of silver, steps up and gives the most impassioned plea to save his brother's life and to save his father from grief. 
It's one of the longest speeches in the Old Testament, by the way. It's this long speech where he's explaining everything that happened, and he's appealing to Joseph to spare Benjamin on the basis of Jacob's special love for him. Not out of jealousy, but he's holding it up as, a, as the basis of beautiful, special love. And he ends his plea with these words in verse 32. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. He takes the blame, and he offers his life in Benjamin's place. Take me instead, that he can go free. He not only has surrendered to Joseph, but he's offered his life in sacrifice for his brother. Do you know this is the first instance in the Old Testament, in, in the scriptures, of a person offering their life in the place of another? He's the first, Judah, Judah is the first to image Christ's sacrificial work, to pre-image our Savior's atoning work, taking the blame and the punishment for his brother. Kind of makes sense, I think, that uh, Jesus eventually came through the line of Judah, doesn't it? What a transformation, total surrender, complete sacrifice. And of course, I think the first application here has to be hope. <laughs> no matter your past, no matter what your struggles are, no matter your present enslaving habits, you're not stuck. You're not destined to your own ineptitude and failure. Our God transforms even the worst. Engage with your guilt, it's real. Sit in the fear of God, he's real. He is your judge. Surrender your life. Receive his mercy. It's real and wonderful, and it was given at the cross where Jesus stepped into your place and mine so we can be forgiven, invited into fellowship. God loves us. He weeps for us. He invites us to know him, he invites us to a, a redo, a fresh start. There's hope. But there's also a challenge here, I think, because such a fresh start, such a transformation means ongoing work and change in our lives, doesn't it? And that can be hard. That can be a real struggle. It's the whole counting the cost thing, isn't it? We like the idea of receiving mercy and being forgiven, but change? Transformation of my my thoughts and my actions, the way I do things. You see, we are challenged with real transformation every day. Every day 
as we sit in front of that computer screen, every day as we interact with our spouse, every day as we speak about or to our boss, we want to change. In Christ, we have that chance. We have that chance to redo, and by his grace, we can get it right. And the chance is fresh every day to be transformed. Do we want to change? Do we want to be transformed? Our God is all about it. Will we join him in it? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these brothers, these brothers that really show us ourselves. And we thank you for Joseph showing us your son. Lord, we pray that you would work in us and through that messy, hard process, we would engage, respond to you, surrender our lives, live sacrificially, because that's what was done by your son for us. Pray these things in his blessed name. Amen.